You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I have my amazing co-host, Dr. Carrie Vedient of Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn of Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And we have an amazing guest with us today, Dr. Kalen Silverberg. He is one of the amazing physicians at Texas Fertility Center. And he is going to join us today to talk about something that's weighing on a lot of people's minds. And because this is such a big topic, we are going to forego our normal chit chat that we do today and kind of go into what we know and what we understand and what we may forecast to be happening in reproductive health now that Roe versus Wade was overturned about two weeks ago. We have a few questions that have been sent in by our listeners, and I want to go over those questions first. We're not necessarily going to answer them right away, but we're going to get to them in the course of the episode. All right. So our first question is, I am 35 and my partner is 33. We recently were approved for IVF with PGTA and PGTM. And with the approval being less than a month away, we originally planned to hold off until after their wedding later this year. Should we be worried about restricted access to PGT testing when Roe versus Wade is overturned? Do you think we should freeze embryos soon to have the normal ones ready for implantation when we are ready? Our second question is, with the recent events of Roe versus Wade being overturned, how are you and your practice doing? Has it affected or do you know how it will affect IVF in your practice? What was it like for you the day you heard the ruling? And our third question is, how does Roe versus Wade decision affect IVF treatments in Tennessee or other states? Will there be ramifications on embryos that are already in storage, normal or abnormal? I have a fourth question to add directly to Kaylin here. Why on God's green earth did you volunteer? Not just very (laughs) kindly say, yeah, I'll come talk to you guys about this, but you volunteered to come do this, which when we were looking at each other going, all right, guys, how do we tackle this one? You're very kind to come and talk to us about all this. So that's the question that I want to know first. Well, first of all, I appreciate y'all having me on your program. I mean, what you have done, I'm not trying to patronize you, but I mean, you know me better than that, but what you guys have done is unbelievable. What you've accomplished is just absolutely unfathomable. Nobody thought that, you know, this would take off like it has. And it's really a tribute to the hard work that the three of you put into this. So First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. you. Very nice. Sure. Well, why am I willing to tackle this? I think it goes back to the issue of when there's a crisis, what you need is you need people to run to the fire and not away from the fire. You know, it's easy to run away from the fire. It's not easy to run toward the fire. And the only reason I'm willing to run toward the fire is because I am just sick and tired of talking to my patients who are petrified. You know, I was on call last, was it last weekend, the weekend before last, I was on call And I saw literally 80, maybe 90 patients on Saturday and Sunday. And I would say out of those, I think we calculated, I got my staff to count them up. 54 of those patients were going through IVF. And I would bet you 40 of those 54 asked me questions in various states of distress about what was going on. And I thought, okay, look, I've got to make sure I'm totally educated about this because I've got to make sure that the patients are getting the right information. 
And this isn't a last second decision to learn about this, right? We knew this was going to happen for months. Anybody who claims that they were taken by surprise, they live in some other planet because this was leaked. It was probably leaked intentionally for whatever reason. And I'm going to, I'm going to say totally out of the politics of this because my attitude about all this, like I told the NPR people yesterday or today, my attitude about all this is that there are people who feel really strongly on each side of this issue. And one side isn't green with green horns sticking out of their heads. And the other side isn't purple with purple horns sticking out of their heads. They really feel vehemently, passionately about these issues because of things that are important to them. And our responsibility, I think, to our patients is to number one, educate them and number two, comfort them. And number three, guide them to the right decisions for them. And to the first part, educating them. We can't educate them if we don't educate ourselves. So months ago when this leaked, I started pouring over everything. You know, we're in Texas and Texas is pointed at by a lot of people who say, well, Texas is part of the South and the South is, you know, going to ruin this for the rest of the country. And if you look at the specific case that was in front of the Supreme Court, it was a Mississippi case. So, you know, there's a lot of issues there. And I'm a very proud Texan. And so I wanted to learn what it was that our legislators did, right or wrong, but they did two things that we'll talk about over the course of this next hour or so. One thing is they passed what's called the heartbeat bill. Usually it's not called a bill when it's passed anymore, but they specifically call it the heartbeat bill in the text itself. Um, it was SBA. And then the second thing we have is we have a trigger law that enacted the ability or the responsibility for the state of Texas to follow certain protocols from the moment that Roe versus Wade was overturned, in the event it would ever be overturned. And now it has been. So how many states have trigger laws then? There were 22 at last count, but there are other states that have laws that are not necessarily trigger laws, but the odds are very high that these states are going to go ahead and enact tougher stances on abortion. But, you know, this is not a brand new thing. And something that's really important to understand really is the history. And if you look at the history, before the 1850s, abortion was allowed before fetal movement could be detected. So before 19 to 20 weeks of pregnancy, you will never guess in a million years who was the first group to push for criminalization of abortion. Okay, in 1857, who pushed for criminalization of abortion? Tell us. Answer, the American Medical Association. Wow. So the AMA in 1857 pushed for criminalization of abortion, except if the woman's life was in danger. And by 1880, they were so effective that every single state in the country had introduced criminal laws, not civil laws, criminal laws banning abortion. Wow. So, you know, people have to understand really where we came from. And one thing that I want to talk about is, is that, you know, if we're going to talk about this, we have to talk about the facts. And some of the facts are very inconvenient. Some of the facts are inconvenient to one side. Other facts are inconvenient to another side. But these facts are very inconvenient, but they're facts. And we have to actually understand what these facts are. Before 1973, abortion was protected by individual states' laws uh, in 20 states. So before 1973, with Roe versus Wade, abortion was illegal in 30 of the 50 states in the United States. So what I'm hearing on the radio these days is, oh, my God, abortion was totally legal and everything was fine until these people screwed it up. Well, that's not factually correct. Okay, so in 73, what happens? Roe versus Wade comes along and that recognizes that women have a constitutional right, which is really important to have a safe and legal abortion, effectively legalizing abortion in the United States. And, you know, kind of a fun fact to me, which is kind of a bizarre thing to think about as a fun fact. When was the first IVF baby born in the United States? 
1981. Roe versus Wade was 73. So our entire field of in vitro fertilization has evolved. Post Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Which is really an incredible thing to think about. I didn't even, it didn't even dawn on me until I started looking into this. So how is this brave new world going to affect IVF? And so maybe we we start breaking it down piece by piece and say, okay, so let's say you have a person who goes through IVF and the embryos are created. We're not going to talk about genetic testing just yet. We have embryos that are in existence and this couple is preparing to transfer them. And let's start with they transfer two. Ultimately, they have two children and they decide they want to get rid of their remaining embryos. So how do these laws affect that? Can they do that? Or are they going to be locked up if they say, I'm done. I want you to donate these to science. I want you to discard them. I want you to get rid of them. So the answer is it depends. Okay. And what is it that it depends on? Well, it depends on something called personhood. So let me give you an example that's not personhood. And then I'll give you an example that is personhood. The state of Texas does not have personhood legislation. What the state of Texas has done is it has established laws that prevent abortion, designed to prevent abortion. Well, to have an abortion, what do you have to have? An embryo in a uterus. <laughs> you have to have a pregnancy. So prior to pregnancy, even though the laws talk about, you know, life from fertilization, you really can't have an abortion without having a pregnancy. Therefore, everybody that I've spoken to so far strongly believes, and I've, saw, I've talked to people who've you know, been involved in writing the legislation as well, everybody strongly believes these laws weren't meant to attack in vitro fertilization. They weren't meant to attack infertility. And when you think about the sponsors of a lot of this legislation, who are these folks? They're people who are pro-life. They want people to get pregnant. They want people to have babies. If you listen to all the media hype and what we're worried about is they're going to take away contraception next, they're going to take away this and that. Well, what does that mean? If they take away contraception, what are they in favor of? They're in favor of pregnancy. So to have an abortion, you have to have a pregnancy. There is no embryo frozen anywhere on the planet Earth that is considered a pregnancy. So when you walk through it, like I've done, there is not a single thing short of, and I'll get to personhood in a minute, but short of personhood statutes, there's not a single prohibition against giving a woman medications to stimulate her ovaries to make eggs. There's no prohibition against harvesting those eggs. There's no prohibition against fertilizing those eggs, either naturally with insemination or artificially with ICSI, with intracytoplasmic sperm injection. There's no prohibition against growing those embryos in the laboratory. There's no prohibition against drilling a hole in the outer membrane around the embryo and doing a biopsy, removing cells. There's no prohibition against freezing an embryo, freezing cells. There's no prohibition against testing an embryo. There's no prohibition against freezing an embryo, no prohibition against thawing an embryo, transferring an embryo. So nothing that we do to the point of putting an embryo into the woman's uterus, nothing is affected by any of these states that don't have personhood statutes. How many states have personhood statutes? At the moment, there's Oklahoma, okay, which has adopted a personhood statute. Missouri is contemplating a personhood statute. And there are a couple of other states that may or may not file personhood statutes, one of which is not Texas. Yay. Yeah, and Tennessee doesn't have a personhood statute either. So, no. so those are the states that really could be impacted by some of these laws. Correct. And personhood is different. Because what personhood means is it means that from the moment of conception, from the moment of fertilization, that embryo is endowed 
with rights and responsibilities of a natural person. Okay. And so therefore damage or destruction of an embryo potentially can be treated differently. Now I'll tell you, I had a conversation with, I'm not going to tell you who, but I go to Washington, you know, prior to COVID, I would go to Washington every quarter to go lobby, but I had a, a very high level meeting with one of the most conservative members of Congress in Washington. And I asked him specifically about a personhood bill that he was authoring. He was a co-author on and he was introducing. And I said, Congressman so-and-so, I've got concerns about this. And he said, Kalen, what are the concerns? And I said, well, one of my concerns is this. I have an embryologist who is carrying a dish of embryos across the laboratory. Something happens. The door opens up into this embryologist. The embryologist drops a dish on the floor. Embryos are gone. Does that embryologist get charged with a felony? Is it a misdemeanor? Is it manslaughter? What is it? And he looked at me incredulously and he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, under the law that you're a co-author on, you know, this is a potential real situation. He immediately got up, goes outside, grabs his staffer, brings his staffer in and said, Kayla, will you repeat to that, you know, repeat that conversation verbatim to my staffer? And I did. He looks at the staffer and says, is he right? And he said, well, theoretically, he could be. So what they immediately did was they took that provision out. They put in a special provision. They eventually dropped the whole bill. So the personhood legislation was never introduced on the floor of Congress. He was one of the main authors of this and one of the main proponents. But he, being a very devout pro-life believer in what he was doing, you know, was so concerned about that. Yet, on the other hand, he absolutely got it that this is not what it's about. So that gives me a lot of confidence. The fact that there was an interview in Forbes magazine last week with two of the authors of the Oklahoma personhood statutes, they asked them specifically, point blank, are you going after IVF? Are you going after infertility treatment? Their response was absolutely not. This is not intended to encumber or interfere at all with fertility treatment or in vitro fertilization. Although things aren't necessarily intended that way, sometimes it ends up happening. You know, the law's the law, and then somebody's like, ooh, I can use this to go after somebody. Totally get it. And that's why I said it depends. Unfortunately, it's going to take years for these issues to sort themselves out within the different states. I mean, it just is. It's going to take years for this to happen. And, you know, I've had patients say to me, well, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And I said, because I don't ever want there to be a law, Silverberg versus so-and-so or so-and-so versus Silverberg. That's not the goal, right? <laughs> the, goal. the goal is to work behind the scenes and to work with our legislators and educate them, our public policymakers, because I really do think that we've got an outstanding case to make. I mean, the one person asked, how did you feel when you heard, I'm like, that weekend was a really long weekend. I mean, besides the fact we're yeah. answering everybody's questions, there was a lot of soul searching going on that weekend. Yes, when it was leaked, we all knew that it was probably getting overturned, but I really didn't think it was going to happen. What should our patients think about and rely upon while they're going through this incredibly stressful time in their life of infertility and just having this big weight kind of placed on everyone's shoulders to deal with in one way or the other? With all due respect, I just don't buy into that. I mean, I really think that if they are objective and they can consider their sources and seek out really factual information, you know where I get my factual information? I read the bills. I read the opinions. I read the laws. I don't care what Joe Blow, the anchor on you know XYZ News, says about it. Here's the one thing I love about the British, and that is they've got news readers. I mean, they're anchor people, aren't opinion people. They just sit there and they read the news. 
And I wish we had that because that's very objective. And, you know, I found an article about the Texas trigger law and another article about the Texas heartbeat law. And I went to the actual text because I couldn't believe it. And in fact, the text is totally contradictory to the articles. And if you read the text of the law, that's what the courts are going to go by. They're not going to go by, you know, some anchor's opinion on some network. Thank goodness. You know, you're not going to have the Supreme Court of the United States or the Supreme Court of the state of Texas saying, well, I'm Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the state of Texas, and I watched such and such last night, and he said so-and-so, so therefore I think it's not going to happen that way. What would you say to somebody who says, you know, when you read these laws in individual states, the definitions are a little, um, a little hazy. They're not exactly the way we as physicians look at the definition of fertilization and pregnancy and all that. And I think that's some of the anxiety and concern is just there's not real specific documentation about what it means in one state to be fertilized and to be pregnant may be a little bit different in a different state. What would you say to a patient who's worried about kind of just the ambiguous wording of the laws in each state? Yeah, and that's certainly a possibility. I can tell you in Texas, I was honestly impressed with the wording of the legislation because they had consultants clearly. I mean, there's no question they had maternal fetal people advising them because the way they use terms is not the way that typically you would think they would use terms. I mean, I joke with a buddy of mine who's a very, very, very well-known congressman that you know I want him to tell people Look, when you get elected to Congress, it doesn't mean you've just completed your OB-GYN residency. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't. So, you know, keep your opinions to yourself. Make sure that if you're going to say something is factually correct, don't get in over your head. And this applies on both sides of the aisle. But I'm telling you, when you read the Texas statutes, and I have not read statutes in all 50 states by any stretch, but I have read the Texas statutes. And when you read them, it is crystal clear, abundantly clear. They had consultants, maternal fetal people, absolutely probably a reproductive endocrinologist as well. It was not me, but they had somebody who was advising them because the way they use terms is the way we use terms. So let me ask one really specific question. And this is a question I've gotten at least two or three times this week about embryos that are frozen and about disposition of embryos that are frozen, both genetically normal embryos and genetically abnormal embryos. How do you see that being impacted by these trigger laws? So I don't, again, for the exact same reason. If it's personhood, absolutely, they're going to be impacted if it's a personhood state. Now, if it's not a personhood state, for example, Texas, there is nothing because there is no pregnancy. And first of all, you have to understand in Texas, embryos, eggs, and sperm fall into the property statutes, right or wrong, they do. Yeah. So they're property. So they don't belong to us. Texas Fertility Center owns 0.0 embryos, fresh or frozen. We are custodians. We are responsible for providing world-class top-flight care for the eggs, sperm, and embryos that are that we have in our possession, but they don't belong to us. So if Sally Smith calls me tomorrow morning and says, you know what, we're so happy we've got our three kids. We don't, we have six extra embryos that are frozen. We don't want them anymore. Destroy them. First of all, we don't do that. That's just been our policy from the very beginning. We don't discard embryos. They're not ours to discard or destroy. So what we tell Sally Smith on the phone is, Sally, those embryos aren't ours. They're yours. If you would like to come pick them up, call the office in the morning. We will have them ready for you. You can do whatever you want to with them because they are yours. Nobody is going to charge Sally Smith or accuse Sally Smith of aborting a pregnancy because there is no pregnancy. If we give those embryos to her in a vial that's frozen in liquid nitrogen and she decides to take it and bury it, whatever she decides to do with it, 
Those embryos are her embryos. There is no pregnancy. She has not violated the heartbeat law, okay, the heartbeat bill, and she's not violated our trigger law either. Now, if Sally Smith lives in Oklahoma, Sally Smith needs to get an attorney to figure out what to do. But having said that, let me go to the next step. And the next step is a question that was asked specifically of Justice Kavanaugh that he wrote about in his opinion. And the specific issue he was trying to address was, can a woman who lives in a state where abortion is no longer legal travel to a state where abortion is legal? And if she does so and receives an abortion in that state where it is legal, when she comes back to her home state, will she be prosecuted? And the answer, according to Kavanaugh, is no. And the reason is there is a guarantee of free passage based on interstate travel law. So she can travel from state to state. She can receive treatment in any state. And he goes on to talk about the fact that no one, at least according to what he talked about, has ever been prosecuted for doing something by their home state. You know, it's not criminal for doing something in another state. So nobody's ever been prosecuted for going to get medical treatment. For example, I'll give you a great example. Cancer treatment, Laetrile. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know how many people, when Laetrile was popular, you know how many people in Texas went to Mexico for Laetrile treatment? Laetrile was not legal in the state of Texas. People would go to Mexico, they'd get treated. It unfortunately didn't work, but they would come back to Texas. You know how many people were prosecuted? Zero. So patients who live in states where abortion is illegal, it appears, and again, things may evolve over time. All I can tell you is what's going on at 826 on July 26 Central Time. <laughs> but based on that, there is no evidence to believe that patients will be prohibited from traveling to a state where abortion is legal to get an abortion and come back. So, Kaylin, if you have somebody who's in a state with personhood statutes and they were going to be needing to seek reproductive care and potentially IVF, would you encourage them to potentially do their IVF not in that state? Well, I think that that's something to consider. And I think that depends on the individual patient. So, you know, we all have patients who say to us, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in PGT because it's not going to change what I do. Mm-hmm. Genetic testing of the embryo, right? Yeah, pre-implantation genetic testing. I'm so sorry. I just think your audience is just as educated as we are. And so I just assume <laughs> that they know exactly what I'm talking about. I was going to say, truly, some of them are. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is that, you know, we all got patients who say, look, if you say to me, look, this embryo has got Down syndrome, I'm going to say to you, I still want to transfer. Those patients, I mean, why wouldn't they go full speed ahead and do IVF wherever they are? On the other hand, if you've got patients who don't believe that, who want to know the genetics of their embryo, and they're in a state with personhood legislation, I think they need to be very careful. And I do think they need to get advice. I would be even more concerned about personhood legislation and somebody who I'm concerned about having lots of extra embryos. Well, that's true too. But still, even in personhood states or personhood legislation states so far, there's no prohibition against transferring your embryos out of state. You could transfer your embryos out of state and then discarded them if you so desired. Absolutely. So, you know, we're all members of Ovation, right? So, you know, Ovation has a freestanding facility for long-term embryo storage in Henderson, Nevada. Now, there's a bunch of reasons that that facility is located in Henderson, Nevada. And I would love to say to you, oh, when we were conceived of this years and years and years ago, we thought, what if, and this is why we put it in Henderson, Nevada. That's not exactly true, but it was a consideration. Okay, that issue actually did come up. And so one reason that it is in Henderson, Nevada, is because we believe that Nevada will always protect a woman's right to have an abortion, at least up to some level. 
And the bottom line is, is that if embryos are developed, conceived, whatever, in Oklahoma, for example, let's just be specific, a person in a legislation state, if they're conceived in Oklahoma, as of now, there is no prohibition against transferring those embryos for long-term storage in Henderson, Nevada, for example. And then when a woman, a couple no longer wants those embryos, they call up Ovation and they say, look, we no longer want those embryos. Well, where are those embryos? They're in Henderson, Nevada. Is there any prohibition against disposing of them? The answer is no, and they can do that. Now, you know, I don't know what Oklahoma is going to do. I just have to believe this interview with these two legislators from Oklahoma who said they have no intent of going after uh, any of this. So part of the reason why Nevada is, is a more protected state is that in 1990, there was a statewide referendum that was passed by the voters. And so the only way that Nevada's abortion laws can change is if the state legislature initiated and approved a change, and then the voters approved that change twice. And so anything is possible, but that's a big ask. Sure. And one caveat I do need to throw out there, um, not just, you know, because my family are all lawyers, but a caveat <laughs> I do need to throw out there is I'm not a lawyer. You know, I read the statutes, but I read the statutes with a medical background, medical training, and I'm interpreting them as I think a physician would interpret them. So, you know, don't take anything I'm saying as legal advice, but I think it's pretty well informed. So do you think that particularly in cases where Personhood's not an issue, but certainly abortion and access thereof is. Do you think that this is going to drive up the use of PGT and carrier screening considerably? Because now having a child who's affected by that is like there is no termination. I mean, you can't do anything for the birth defects that come up that nobody can test for. But do you think it's going to really drive PGT use in patients who are really actively looking to avoid the need for an abortion later on. Yeah, Carrie, I think you really hit the nail on the head. I think that, you know, and I've been asked this by multiple media outlets already, and that is how this is going to affect our business. And I say to them, oh my God, this is like the worst possible question because number one, I never like thinking of what we do as a business, but number two, you're asking me, and now I'm going to have to answer it in a way that sounds very self-serving. And the answer is, I think that what you're saying is exactly right. I think that we are going to see an influx of people who are not infertile, but who want to come to us because they want pre-implantation genetic testing of their embryos, not only because it will raise their likelihood of pregnancy per cycle, lower their incidence of miscarriage per cycle, but it will markedly reduce the risk that they will be faced with a hard choice of do we terminate a pregnancy and go out of state to do it, or do we continue? One thing that I think has been really sensationalized in the media is things that happen after you get pregnant. And most importantly, when somebody has an ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy in the wrong place, that's not safe for a woman that could actually be a life-threatening emergency. What would you say to people who are having fears about that? Because that's actually one of the most common questions I've been getting in my clinic. So I think that that's really totally unwarranted. So first of all, if you look at the literature, you know, the likelihood of an ectopic pregnancy having a heartbeat is about 7%. Okay, so 93% of ectopics, if you take that, accept those data, 93% of ectopics don't have a heartbeat. Okay, so therefore you can't violate the heartbeat law if there is no heartbeat. And in fact, the heartbeat law in Texas specifically stakes out the exact procedures that someone has to follow to be able to do, quote unquote, an abortion of a pregnancy legally. 
And one thing is you have to do an ultrasound. And if there's a medical emergency, you're exempt. And there's there are a bunch of different exemptions. But the bottom line is you need to do an ultrasound. And if you do an ultrasound and you exercise good judgment and good technique and you do not see a heartbeat, you can terminate that pregnancy at any gestational age. And it is absolutely not a violation of the law. But that's changing with the trigger law. No, 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 no. Even with the trigger law. Okay. My understanding is the trigger law still... I think is going to be interpreted with along with the heartbeat. There is no, there's no heartbeat there. So I don't believe that you can terminate a pregnancy even with the trigger law. It outlaws abortion and I get it from the moment of fertilization. I understand that. But number one, when there's no heartbeat and number two, even more importantly, we know what the outcome is of an untreated ectopic pregnancy. Right. And so even under the trigger law, you are allowed to do anything to save the life of the mother. Okay, it says the Texas trigger law prohibits abortion from the moment of fertilization, except number one, to save the life of a pregnant patient, or number two, to prevent, quote, substantial impairment of major bodily function. Okay, so the substantial impairment doesn't have to occur. You can be doing this termination to prevent the substantial impairment. So I think that to be able to treat ectopic pregnancies without batting an eye. So even with your heartbeat law in Texas, if I'm the 7% that has an ectopic pregnancy with a heartbeat, then my doctor would be able to go in safely and take care of it. Everybody knows it's going to rupture. and Yeah, and you're saving the life of a pregnant patient, and you're also preventing substantial impairment of major bodily function. We don't have a heartbeat bill that I'm aware of or a personhood bill, but yeah, that's my biggest concern is just the, the definition of what when life begins in each state. To me, that's the biggest concern, and that varies from state to state. I think that's one nice thing about this reference that we have from ASRM that we are going to include in our write-up about this episode. We know this is going to be a moving target. Hopefully, there will be more things we can add in here as we get more information. But as you said at the beginning, a lot of these things are going to evolve and we're going to have to work through them together as physicians, with our patients, and with our legal system. And Kaylin has always been the person to go and encourage all of us physicians to go and talk to our legislatures and you know be involved with Resolve and be, you know do those things that you need to to advocate. But I highly encourage our patients to also do that because just as Kaylin has spent innumerable hours educating our legislators about some of these nuances, the more people they hear it from, the more they'll understand that this law worded this way could have very undesired consequences that weren't intended. So Kaylin, in closing, you know, what would you say if a patient asked you point blank, okay, Dr. Silverberg, the way you care for me as a patient, what's going to change now when this trigger law kicks in? Well, I still like injectable drugs and IUI, for example. Okay. I mean, I'd still do. I published a lot of papers on it. I still think it's a very reasonable treatment. This is making me rethink that. So the concern that I have is multiple pregnancy, you know, especially selective reduction, because the one thing that is absolutely changed based on the trigger law and the heartbeat bill are selective reduction is no longer allowed in Texas, period. So, so the patient with injectable fertility drugs is more likely to have multiple gestations, more than one baby, right? You're saying you're a little more hesitant to do that because they, if they have two or three or four babies. Yeah, it's going to be a lot easier for me now philosophically to say to the patient, you know, I bet you can get pregnant with this, but gosh, IVF is so much safer and we can almost eliminate the risk of multiple pregnancy. And not only that, 
we can do genetic testing and we can make sure the embryo that we're putting in to the best of our ability, 97, 98% accuracy is going to be euploid. And you're not going to have to worry about abnormalities down the road and nothing's going to bite you at that 10 to 11 week blood test or the 19 to 20 week ultrasound. You can rest assured that you should be okay when those things happen. But most of what you do with IVF, you would say, or all of what you do with IVF right now is not going to change. I can't think of anything that is going to change. And, you know, I tell patients this, we've all talked innumerable patients in two weeks off the ledge. So true. I mean, it's really, it's unbelievable. And our patients are just so special. I mean, they really are. I mean, it's just, you know, every patient who's gone through fertility treatment adds to the building blocks of what we have to get us to the state of knowledge where we are now. And, you know, unfortunately, we're going to ask our patients to dig deep again, because once again, they're guinea pigs. And once again, they're helping us to write the appropriate changes or modifications in these laws that are going to be adopted from state to state. And there, but there's nobody more resilient. I don't think, you know, besides cancer patients, there's nobody more resilient than fertility patients. I mean, we work with a gifted group of people, not only from a physician perspective, but, you know, from our patient perspective, we work with amazing superheroes on a daily basis. Absolutely. Well, Caitlin, I can't thank you enough for coming and talking with us today. We wanted to tackle this subject and, and you have just brought an amazing amount of information and perspective. And I love the history. <laughs> I do too. I didn't expect the history part. This was great. Yeah, it's good. Exactly. And so we very much appreciate you coming and talking with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Congratulations again on everything you guys have accomplished. And thanks so much for having me. Thank you. To our audience, thank you so much for listening and please tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by and leave us a like or follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. Leave us an episode idea. Don't hold back though. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. And especially on this one, it's not a substitute for legal advice from your own lawyer. <laughs> all right, all. We will talk to you soon. Tune in next week for more. Bye. Bye. Bye.